Welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Pete and Jason from Squeaky Pedal. Um, very happy today to say we're joined by Peter Francis from the Cumberworth Wargraves Commission. So thank you, Peter, for joining us. Much appreciated your time to discuss some uh, all things Unknown Warrior and grave registration and all those things that are in, in your knowledge uh, house, as it were. So thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. I mean, so we've done a few episodes now on kind of talking about various aspects of the Unknown Warrior and kind of the bodies that were chosen and the people that were involved. But one of the things we kind of wanted to go through with you is the process and the admin kind of behind that, because it's a really interesting process of kind of, um, you know, how that all started or where that all came from. So we know we, when we've spoken to uh, people in the previous episode, we've spoken about the Director of Graves Registration and Inquiry, which is kind of the, almost the precursor to CWGC, right? It's kind of that, almost the starting point, but there's a bit of a, a muddy kind of waters in between the, how that became the Imperial War Commission and then how that kind of turned into you guys. So do you want to just explain to us kind of how that kind of ended up being started uh, after the First World War or during the First World War even, and then kind of how it morphed into what you guys are, what you guys are, what you guys do today? Absolutely, yeah, no problems at all. So I think it's difficult because we've all grown up with remembrance and we've kind of grown up with an acceptance that you commemorate your fallen servicemen. So appreciate that actually before the First World War and even at its start, that concept was completely alien to the British Army. So it had no processes in place for dealing with large-scale casualties. It certainly had no intention of commemorating them in perpetuity. It's not kind of what the British Army had done before. I always tell a little bit of a story about the Battle of Waterloo. You know, at the end of the Battle of Waterloo, the dead were simply kind of covered in lime and thrown into pits and forgotten. And a few years later, many of them were exhumed. And when you ask younger people why that was, they kind of go, oh, to bring the bodies home or to give them a decent burial. The, the truth's a bit more shocking. They were burnt so that the ashes could be used as fertilizer and the teeth were taken to make dentures. So there's such a thing as Waterloo teeth, would you believe? So it's only 100 years later that our attitude to the army has started to change. And it's because the First World War, I think, is so different. You know, for the first time, this is a volunteer citizen army. It's no longer an army on the fringes of empire. They will say it, an unpopular army, an army, a policing empire. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an inclusive one. It's an army made up of our fathers, our brothers, our sporting heroes and, and things like that. And when it starts to suffer massive casualties, the British public begins to demand something be done to recognise that loss. And out of that kind of chaos, you have almost this kind of cometh the hour, cometh the man figure called Fabian Ware, who, who becomes the commission's founder. And... He'd been a newspaper man. He'd reported on the Boer War and he'd seen the kind of distress that that had caused to relatives with no final resting place. And so he, although he goes out to France to kind of command a unit of the Red Cross, his unit very, very quickly starts to take on this role of marking and caring for graves as they come across them. And by 1915, he's believed that this work is so important, he starts to push the army to put it on a more formal footing. And although there's some reluctance to begin with, they kind of yield to it. Um, and they create initially the Army Graves Registration Commission, which again becomes the Director of Grave Registration and Inquiries. And it's Fabian Ware at its head. So he's got this hat on, he's kind of got this military hat on, um, but he's still concerned about what's going to happen to the bodies once the war's over. And so at the same time, he's pushing in the background for this independent organization that becomes the Imperial, now Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And that's approved by a war charter on the 21st of May, 1917. And he's the vice chairman of that. So he's kind of wearing these two hats and he's still wearing those two hats by the time you get to 1920 and the unknown warrior practicality. So 
you're absolutely right, Pete. There is a bit of confusion. Directorate grave registration and, and is, is more the army. The Imperial War Graves Commission is a kind of a standalone unit in its own right. And inevitably, perhaps there's just a little bit of crossover in the early days as the commission starts to take over increasing responsibility from that directorate and starts to try and bring permanency to the commemoration of the war dead. So I tend to like to think of the DGRE as the kind of practical stuff, you know, the recovering the bodies, all of the paperwork that kind of sits now in our archives. And the commission is kind of the, the memorialization bit of the kind of equation, if, it, if, if that makes it any simpler for people to understand. And how are the bodies being recorded and buried initially during the war? Probably, if at all, Jason, it was really by by their units. So you might have a dedicated army chaplain who would do the best he could. Small kind of regimental cemeteries kind of were established near the front line or behind the front lines. But of course, huge numbers of bodies simply weren't being recovered at all. It was far too dangerous to do so. And so lots of them were simply lying out in no man's land or, or being destroyed by subsequent fighting. Uh, there wasn't any systematic process in place to mark places of burial, even to mark the graves permanently. And that's what Ware brings to the table. So he brings a process. He starts to establish regulations and rules for where cemeteries should be cited. And one of the things that I find remarkable about him is long before the war is over and before the war is even certain to be won by the Brits and, the, and her French allies, he's, he's negotiating for permanent cemeteries. So he, he obviously has this vision and he starts to negotiate for the permanency of commemoration of the dead. He also starts to establish kind of principles, which again, we now take for granted. So this idea that we would treat everybody equally, regardless of their rank, and also that to do so, we wouldn't repatriate the dead. So very early on in the war, you know, some of the more wealthy families had managed to repatriate their loved ones. And this, perhaps the last really high profile example is Gladstone's grandson is repatriated by the family and brought back to the family vault. And this absolutely horrifies where he thinks that's not right. And so he pushes the French to kind of bring in this banning order while the war is on which means that actually the bodies are going to stay in France. Then when the commission is established, that's kind of brought in as a principle. And of course, that's hugely controversial because in effect, what you're doing is almost kind of state-controlled bereavement. And what you have in our archive is these letters from grieving mothers, which actually break your heart. You know, I sent my son off to war, you've taken him from me, and now you're not even going to let me have his body back. And I think that's why... The commission's history and policies are so important to the story of the unknown warrior because you can't divorce one from the other. You have to see it within that context. So what he comes to represent has to be seen in the context of that. Most of our physical focus for remembrance is actually overseas and not here in the hub of empire. There's, you know, there's so many letters that were written to, you know, various parts of government and the Imperial War Ghost Commission, as you say, that kind of put pressure, wasn't it, to kind of, that then the powers that be thought, okay, maybe we do need to sort something out here because we can't repatriate anyone. And the, as you say, the letters from mothers and sisters and fathers and, you know, all sorts of things. Just, there's a, you know, a, a kind of a, a push towards the kind of unknown war and the cenotaph that was kind of was building for a little bit before it kind of came to be. One of the things that I often say to people is that one of the reasons why we remember the two world wars is because for the very first time you've got something to focus your remembrance on. You know, as human beings we're kind of strange creatures, aren't we? We we often need to be able to touch something or visit it or see it. 
uh, before we believe it. <laughs> uh, we're kind of the doubting Thomases, aren't we, if, the, the, if to take the biblical kind of reference. But, and I think you're absolutely right, Pete, because there, I mean, there are war graves here in the UK, and one does start to see kind of springing up of memorials. But, but that lack of having something to focus that grief on, which must have been so raw, even in 1920, two years after the, the war had kind of ended, means that the unknown warrior and the cenotaph just take on that added significance you know you look at 1919 and that first peace day as it was known then commemoration and uh you know in the middle of the summer rather than in winter time and obviously with a temporary cenotaph as opposed to the permanent it was that reaction to it wasn't it the public reaction to it which i think took people by surprise and of course at the same time the commission is still battling this rather powerful opposition uh, about what it's trying to do and for a time being in 1920 it looks like we're not even going to be able to do anything at all you know the, the commission's history again we tend to take for granted but it was a real near-run thing we nearly didn't exist at all you know 1920 there's this big parliamentary debate uh, Fabian Ware is even concerned when you read his kind of private notes that he's not even convinced our own chairman who's a guy called Winston Churchill by the way uh, is backing the commission and it takes a lot of work between him and kind of people like Rudyard Kipling in the background to kind of win them over to the vision that they have uh, for a fitting commemoration of a war dead. And that parliamentary debate, when you read the minutes in Hansard, it's bitter, it's raw. Um, and the House divides without reaching a conclusion. It's not like we win, but it's really interesting then because I think the circumstances or the practicalities of things on the ground start to overtake the debate. Uh, so you have the cenotaph being made permanent, you have the unknown warrior, but you also have the first three commission cemeteries, the kind of experimental cemeteries are taking shape. And there's this lovely report in the Times newspaper at the time, which talks about actually what a noble and beautiful places these, you know, these cemeteries are. And then the opposition starts to filter away and the commission starts to embark on what Rudyard Kipling called the biggest single bit of work since the pharaohs and they only worked in their own country. It's fascinating. I mean, you, you talk there about these, these cemeteries being set up and, and a lot of them, the graves are, are concentrated from different places into, into one place to, to gather all the, all the bodies together. What was the reasoning behind that to sort of concentrate all those into one place? Yes, there are very much, there are different types of cemeteries, Jason. And one of the, one of the fun things is kind of learning how to read one of our cemeteries, if I can put it that way. So we, we do have what we call battlefield cemeteries. They tend to be smaller. Uh, you tend to perhaps have a higher proportion of unknown burials in them. Uh, the graves probably won't be in neat and ordered rows. They might be kind of higgledy-piggledy um, throughout the cemetery because it kind of reflects the fact that it was built in a hurry. Uh, so Polygon Wood Cemetery in Belgium is a really good example. You know, you're talking just over 40 graves. It's kind of an unusual shape. The burials kind of face in different directions and, and things like that. So you can tell it was a battlefield cemetery. And then you've got the really, really big ones that are kind of sitting next to kind of hospitals and what we kind of call hospital or dressing station cemeteries. So the graves tend to be really closely packed in them. Uh, much higher proportion of identified burials because obviously by the time the person had made it to the hospital, they kind of knew who they were treating. Uh, and they tend to be very neat and ordered, but the headstones are often touching. Uh, Listen Hook Cemetery in Belgium is a really good example. Uh, because they weren't digging individual graves, they were almost digging trenches. They were digging, you know, they were dealing with so many casualties. But when the war is over, 
you still got all these kind of small cemeteries dotted across the Western Front. And although the French and Belgian governments are hugely generous to the commission in terms of land, you know, people are starting to move back into their farms and starting to re-establish their lives. And so most of those smaller cemeteries and the isolated burials were concentrated into the into the bigger cemeteries that you see today to guarantee their care and maintenance. So Tynecott is perhaps the best example. You know, Tynecott's perhaps the it's well it is the biggest commission cemetery in the world it's perhaps the best known best visited the original burials only number a couple of hundred and they're around where the cross of sacrifice now is at the top of the cemetery but the cemetery itself contains you know 12,000 graves but the vast majority of those were brought in between 1918 and 1921 by these grave concentration units who were doing I think kind of the unsung heroes of the commission's history uh, you know, they were usually men of the Pioneer Corps. Um, the Chinese Labour Corps played a significant role as well. And they had the thoroughly unpleasant task of going out into the battlefields and trying to find, recover and identify the dead. And every single headstone that bears a name is testament to their dedication and their skill in those very, very difficult and trying circumstances. They literally divided the battlefields up into grids and and walked them time and time again. So. If anyone's ever kind of seen one of those kind of police lineups when they're kind of, you know, walking across a field looking for evidence, it was a bit like that. They became expert at kind of spotting, uh, you know, a burial location, perhaps, you know, a bit of, well, there's a bit of lush undergrowth, you know, there's possibly a burial there. Uh, they also did some rather, I guess, for want of a better word, more graphic things too. They would have metal poles, which they would sink into the ground and then, you know, smell the end of to see again whether or not there was a, was a body there so uh, one can only imagine what it must have been like for them but my god they did a, a bloody good job yeah it must have been not an easy day's work that is it and where so when they were doing this and where that approach to that come from then was that just something that they developed i don't want not skill set in that but you know they got you know developed that kind of grid system and they kind of just as you say and you learn over time that to notice different things was that just something that they developed because it was a relatively kind of new approach almost is it i don't know how you want to phrase it but yeah no pretty much pete i mean that's that, that's kind of how it was they, they kind of learned as they went along and then i guess slowly but surely a very typical british fa fashion those those things then started to get written down and become guidelines and principles so there are instruction booklets to officers of grave registration and concentration units and it's also about so you know don't build a cemetery near a water supply for example you know it's all the practical stuff like that um, it talks about what the men should do in terms of keeping themselves clean. You know, they, they wash themselves in creosote and things like that. But yeah, it starts to become established. And it's really interesting. The units themselves become so expert. They can spot different shades of khaki, you know, and they can spot differences between the uniforms of the various Commonwealth countries. And anything they can do to identify someone, they do. And I think, again, something that's really interesting is perhaps sometimes overlooked is the is the actual identity tag system that we now know, the dog tags. You know, before 1916, soldiers only wore one. And it was common practice to remove it when that person was killed as proof they'd been killed. Well, great, you've just taken away the best chance you have of identifying that person. Uh, and it's Fabian Ware who insists that there should be two, you know, and it's something that was stayed with the army and indeed armed forces around the world to this day. So, so again, they would look for those. They're made of a compressed fiber. They're supposed to be rot-proof and, and flame-proof, but they burn and they rot. Um, so they very rarely survive. But again, lots of soldiers, you know, would have their own ones made of metal. 
Uh, and sometimes those would give a clue, but perhaps it would be a letter. It would be just, you know, a date stamp on a piece of uniform. What's really fascinating is in the Commission Archive, we have a photographic album from one of these units doing this work in 1946 in Normandy. And for us, it's almost like a pictorial step-by-step -step about how the cemeteries came into being. It's a fascinating insight. And, you know, do check out the Commission's archive. It's got all sorts of gems in there and it's completely open to the public. You know, we're more than happy to let people have a look at those things. Yeah, speaking about the archive, you've got a lot of the burial return documents in relation to the bodies that are being recovered and then, and then put in cemeteries. How, how were those bodies that were recovered recorded when they were laid to rest in cemeteries? So... Literally, the, the, as I said, the battlefield was guided, divided up into, into a grid system. Uh, so the map system used the old trench map system, so with, with grave references and things. They're sometimes referred to, so we have versions of them. The Imperial War Museum has copies of them as well. They're sometimes referred to as, as body density maps. They should more correctly be referred to as cross density maps because it, they've got the counting is actually the number of crosses in a particular grid. And... When a body was found, the NCO or officer would be called and he would start to establish the paperwork process. So he would start to note the grid reference at which the body was found. Uh, was there anything in particular that led to a particular identification? Uh, all of this would be mapped down and then where that body was taken to so that you have that chain of custody from start to finish. So you'll see that for bodies that have always been in a cemetery, there won't be as much information as for a body that was concentrated into a cemetery. So if you look at the commission's paperwork, you'll sometimes have something which says previous place of burial, and it will give you this grid reference from where the body was found on the battlefield. Uh, and it's fascinating. There's some really good software out there now, which helps you to kind of map those grid references to modern day, uh, you know, maps like Google maps and things like that. So you can actually work out where people were brought in from which battlefields, but yeah, a huge process. The commission's records originally stretched about 20 kilometers in length you know it's it, it's that sort of sheer amount of paperwork and it was only back in was it 1995 that our all of our casualty records were digitized and, and kind of then made available in 1998 on the website it's only fairly recently that that paper system was moved to a completely digital system because you know the paper system served us pretty well for decades it was uh, it was limiting you know, you had to kind of know who you were looking for. So you couldn't, for example, uh, say how many captains were killed on the first day of the song, where of course now with a computer database, you can do exactly that. So it's, it is interesting the way things have, have come on. And indeed, people talk a lot about DNA and DNA being the holy grail of identification. I would say equally as important is the availability of records online and the availability to cross-reference those records. They play a huge part in the kind of investigative process that you know, our commemorations team do back in Maidenhead in Berkshire, where our head HQ is, and equally our member governments around the world. Yeah, that's it. And I think that's what kind of astounds you, really, about the about the whole paperwork process. And obviously when that began, you know, as, as when we're talking about around the time of the Unknown Warrior and stuff, that just colossal amount of manpower and that kind of, you know, you can't find information, as you say, now you can go online and search for, you know, how many people, how many captains were killed on a certain day or whatever like that. But it's just mind-boggling, really, to me, that that colossal amount of work and those colossal amount of people, that colossal amount of paperwork was just generated for that. And that, that of someone's job to document and record all that. It's a, it's a weird thing to think, isn't it, in the kind of internet age that we are in now, that, and the, you know, the digital age. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, you know, thousands of clerks 
you know, typing away, uh, making lists, even the process of making the registers, you know, this, this was actually Roger Kipling's idea, you know, he wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to, to find the grave of their loved one. So every cemetery has a register where the burial's in it. And those registers were printed and made available, you know, to libraries all across the Commonwealth. That process on its own was, was you know, enormous. It's, it's one of the things about the Commission, when you start to examine it in pure terms of scale, it, it is extraordinary. We sometimes joke a little bit back in Maidenhead when we say, you know, we mow the equivalent of a thousand football pitches worth of grass every week. Some of your listeners might be keen gardeners. They might measure their borders at home in metres. We measure ours in kilometres. You know, it's it's that scale of what we're doing. But at the bottom of it, though, is the fact we're a deeply human organisation and behind every single headstone, there's a human story just waiting to be told. And, and, and that's what I really like about it. You know, we are preserving the names and the memory of individuals. It's not just about scale. And the work that you guys do, it's, you know, it's not just, you know, just after the First World War, just after the Second World War, it continues right up to this very day with bodies that are still being discovered and being exhumed and being buried in cemeteries. So the way that the bodies were identified in 1920 is different to now. What what other methods and tools do you use now if you come across a body to try and identify who that who that individual may be? Yeah, so we, we get about probably about 40 cases a year now, Jason, on the Western Front, former Western Front, I should say. And most of them are kind of accidental finds. It's, you know, farmers plowing fields or it's perhaps as towns and cities expand into what were once former battlefields. There's a there's a hospital site, for example. Well, I should say it's going to be a hospital. It's a building site at the moment just outside Lons in France. And over the last 12, 18 months, that's been a, a location where we've had significant numbers of finds. And because the commission has offices on the ground in France and Belgium, we've got excellent relationships with those authorities. And there is a process in place. So in France, we have what we call exhumation officers. And if a set of remains are found, the local police are always informed, first of all, so they can satisfy themselves they're not dealing with a present-day homicide, that it is actually historical. And if it is, then they'll call our team and they'll drop, they quite literally will drop whatever they were doing and they will go out and they will recover those remains. Uh, they do so to an archaeological standard. Everything is photographed and catalogued and brought back to our mortuary at Arras. So, yeah, we, we have mortuaries. And in the mortuary, everything is examined again, again photographed. And we put together a report, uh, which we then submit to the relevant government. So most of them tend to be UK, MOD, and we would send them uh, a report with our findings and anything that we can work out. So our commemorations team, again in Maidenhead, will do a kind of initial trawl through our records. So say, for example, we're lucky enough to find a regimental association for an individual uh, we'll do a little bit of work to say, well, that regiment was only in that area at this particular time. And of the 50 or so, say, people who were killed, uh, 27 of them are uh, identified burials already. So there's a potential pool of candidates for 23 who might be that individual. And that kind of just sets sets the ball in motion, as it were. In Belgium, it's slightly different. We, we, we don't have exhumation officers in Belgium. Most of the recoveries are done by local archaeologists on behalf of the state, and then the remains are handed to us. But then the rest of the process is exactly the same. Uh, the member government will will begin the investigation. If DNA is practical and viable, then they will use it. Uh, but as I was saying earlier, you know, it's not the holy grail everybody thinks it is. You, know, you do need an idea of who the individual is before you can 
go out and find some family to compare that DNA sample to. So I kind of use the analogy, it's a bit like trying to trying to do a jigsaw puzzle, but without a picture on the box. So you don't really know where you're going to end up. And then the cases can take, you know, many years to reach a successful conclusion. But regardless of whether or not that individual is identified or not, they are buried in the most appropriate Commonwealth War Grave Commission cemetery in which we have space. So we try to treat them as if they were found in 1918. And we try to bury them with their mates so that you have that context it isn't we're not removing them out of context uh, but yeah certainly the number of identifications over the last 20 years that i've been at the commission has increased massively and again it is it's not just one thing it's not just advances in dna it is the ability to cross-reference records and then we've had really kind of unusual things like from l back in 2010 when we were actually managing the recovery of six mass graves containing 250 Australian and British soldiers whose resting place for whatever time was missed by one of those grave registration units in the 1918s. And yeah, we had to build a brand new cemetery because we didn't have one that could take that many individuals. Uh, so for the first time in 50 years, we were actually building a new cemetery. So uh, for Mel's perhaps the exception to the rule, but it was still a really fascinating project to see that comes to life. And I think if you'd asked us at the start of that project, how many of these guys will you name? We'd probably maybe say 10 or so. And today it's more than half. You know, I think the figure stands at about 160 something of them have been given their identity. So, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. But now with the advances in science, it is. That's absolutely fascinating. That's amazing, yeah. And I was going to ask you also a little bit about the unknown warriors that exist now in in Canada and Australia and, and New Zealand, because that's a that's a fascinating story in of itself. How those how those unknown warriors came to be. Yeah, and, it, and it's really interesting. I think we tend to think of them as a fairly modern idea, but particularly in Australia and New Zealand's cases, they actually raised it in 1920. Uh, so straight after the Unknown Warrior in Westminster Abbey, both Australia and New Zealand considered whether or not they should have their own. And it was quietly kind of forgotten and dropped until until much, much later. So the Australian Unknown Warrior was in 1993. Uh, the Canadian was in 2000 and in New Zealand 2004. So, so fairly recently uh, that those nations have requested uh, a repatriation and it's the one time when the commission actually has allowed uh, repatriation of remains in a modern circumstance so agreements had to be reached we then were involved in the selection process for all three uh, because we had to identify appropriate cemeteries and potential grave concentrations that would work uh, so by that i mean you know actually finding a cemetery in which you had significant numbers of unknowns of that nationality to guarantee the sanctity of the process so that they would also remain unknown you know so that was the kind of key to it so yeah it was quite complex but hugely rewarding and really interesting to see the way all three were received in their home countries you know i think we tend to forget don't we that they are quite literally thousands and thousands of miles away from where most of their troops served and fought and died. And again, I think it's important that, you know, they had their own focal point in the hearts of each of those countries, just to kind of remind, particularly that next generation of the contribution that their men and women had made so far away from home. 
that's the fascinating thing about the idea of the unknown warrior and the you know the one in Westminster Abbey and the other ones we just mentioned like that that idea still carries on and you can still you know as you just said that you know the Australian one in the 90s and then the Canadian one after that that this idea still carries on and even you could do this process in the modern era and it still holds the same kind of gravitas and the same poignancy that the the original idea still had I think that's really it's not usual in this modern world, and maybe that, that kind of is the case, do you know what I mean? And, and I think it's a testament to kind of the, you know, I know Jace has been to of your guys' cemeteries in France, and I've been to a few, and I've been to the, the workshop near Arras as well, which is really fascinating to kind of go around there. And I think, as you say, you mentioned earlier on that your, the CWC really puts that kind of human element back into these kind of, into this kind of process. I think that's really important. I think you're absolutely right, and I think it also shows just what a great idea it was back in 1920. I mean, you know, you know, f- fair play to David Railson, the reverend who came up with the idea. It, it, it just was a good idea. It is still a good idea. You can see the impact that it still has on people to this day. You know, it's it's very much a reminder that, you know, we've we fought two terrible wars. You know, they had, you know, they had to be fought, but they fought to such an extent that individuals lost their identity. You know, and it's the genius of the Kipling inscription, you know, a soldier of the Great War, known none to God you know, unknown, but known. It's, I often look at those, you know, it's, it's interesting when I visit one of our cemeteries, I'm drawn to the unknowns for some reason. And I kind of wonder who they were and, and things like that. And we, we do the same when we visit the tombs of the, the unknown warriors, whether it's in Westminster Abbey or the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, you know, it's the fact that they are all of us, I think is the real power behind each of those places. It's a fascinating and enduring symbol. And it's been really nice to explore that in its uh, centenary year this year, really, and have it brought to the fore a, a little bit more. So, Peter, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and fascinating to hear a little bit about the Commission's work in a bit more detail. So um, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure, guys. Pleasure to speak to you.